you have your Bible here today, Acts chapter 27. Acts 27 today. The title of our message here this morning is How to Survive a Shipwreck. In May of 2013, a tugboat named the Jascon 4 was towing an oil freighter off the coast of Nigeria and it encountered a storm and it capsized and the tugboat began sinking. The man aboard that tugboat was named Harrison O'Keen. He was trapped inside. As the vessel descended 100 feet to the floor of the Atlantic, it was pitched upside down. O'Keen was tossed to and fro in his small quarters. He groped his way around in the pitch darkness. As the ship sank, he finally found a cabin with a four-foot pocket of air. He made a makeshift life raft by stacking two mattresses together to escape the rising waters. And all he could do was wait his inevitable death. The thought of rescue seemed remote. But O'Keen, who was a follower of Jesus, started to pray the Psalms that he had been reading the night before. And so he cried out to God for deliverance as he quoted from Psalm 54 and Psalm 92. He was there for two and a half days, waiting for the air to run out, waiting to die in that watery grave. Then he heard the faint sounds of divers outside. He picked up a hammer nearby and he started banging the wall of the tugboat. And The divers were shocked when they came in. They could not believe their eyes. There was Harrison O'Keen miraculously living in a pocket of air while the tugboat lay upside down on the floor of the ocean. And to this day, Harrison O'Keen knows that he is a survivor of divine deliverance. He told a newspaper reporter, the rest of my life is not enough to thank God for this incredible wonder. One reason why... Brother Harrison survived that shipwreck was because he had a life preserver like none other, the Word of God. In fact, Psalm 54, which he prayed during that ordeal, says this in verse 1, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And then verse 7, He has delivered me from every trouble. And anybody who's ever been through a storm can say, Amen. When I first read that story, and as I began to study Acts 27 in preparation for this message, I began to wonder, what scripture kept the Apostle Paul afloat in Acts 27? By now, the apostle has been a prisoner under the custody of a centurion, whom the Bible tells us was named Julius. They're headed for Rome. Paul is going to Rome to make his final appeal before the emperor, a man at this time named Nero. And along with Paul is his faithful companion on that ship, Dr. Luke. But before they arrived on 
the coast of Italy, the ship that was carrying Paul and about 275 other passengers ran into a terrible storm and the sailors aboard were waylaid for 14 days. And what follows then in Acts 27 is perhaps the most harrowing story in the whole book, if not, maybe even the Bible. Because here we are going to see Paul's courageous faith and how that faith kept him buoyant as he was being storm-tossed and shipwrecked. And anybody else here today can attest that 2020 has been a storm of epic proportions, has it not? We're still in the throes of this worldwide pandemic. Then we've seen cultural upheaval and riots, looting and burning in the streets of America. All of this taking place in the political turmoil of an election year. And the media has so clouded the waters that sometimes I get up and I say, God, I don't know what's real anymore. Lord, I don't know what to believe except Your Word. And I find myself many times like Paul, storm-tossed and shipwrecked in this life. But I find here four incredible lessons for how to survive a shipwreck. If you're reading with me, we'll pick up in verse 9 this morning of Acts 27. And here's the first lesson that I see today. We need to learn this, that God's providence allows for storms. God's providence allows for storms. Verse 9, Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend winter there. Now Paul was a seasoned sailor by now in the book of Acts. He had sailed many times across the Mediterranean in his missionary journeys. And he could read the winds and the waves like an experienced sailor. And so that time of year that they were out at sea was very dangerous. In verse 9 we read that the fast had already passed. And that's a reference to the Jewish fast associated with the Day of Atonement. And if you know anything about your Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement took place in the fall of the year. And so what that meant is that here it is fall going into winter at a time when the Mediterranean can be unpredictable and tempestuous. And Paul tells these men before they are about to set sail, hey, if we're doomed if we go on this trip. We're sailing into a perfect storm. But because of the prevailing conditions and because they thought Paul didn't know what he was talking about, they took a majority vote and they set sail. The Bible tells us toward the island of Crete, just off the coast of Italy. Now when you read Paul's prognostication there in 
verse 9, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss. Doesn't that sound a lot like life? He gave some sound counsel there about what we can expect as we set sail on the seas of life. It's been said there's three kinds of Christians. There are those who are coming out of a storm. There are those who are in a storm. There are those who are about to go into a storm. Remember what Jesus said? He said, in this world you shall face tribulation, but fear not, I have overcome the world. So the issue of storms is not an if, but it's a when. And how hard will the winds blow and how intense will the waves be? Now, the reason I belabor that point is because if you visit a lot of pulpits today across our country and you tune into the so-called prosperity preacher on television, uh, you're not going to hear them talk about much of the storms of life. That may pack auditoriums, but a lot of American Christians have been duped into believing that the Christian life is all smooth sailing. And friend, I'm not helping you if I preach that kind of message. While that kind of unbiblical preaching may draw a crowd, the result that you get from that is shallow Christians who will drown when the winds and the waves of life get angry. And so the Bible shows that God has a track record of charting a course for His people, oftentimes not around the storm, but through the storm. Why is that? Because a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. Now, broadly speaking, we could say that there's about three or four different kinds of storms that we may encounter in life. There are what I call storms of correction. That's what Jonah went through. In that little tiny book in your Old Testament, in the Minor Prophets section, Jonah was running from God's will, and so God sent the storm to get him back on track, right? Then there are also not just storms of correction, there's storms of perfection. That's like the one we see in the Gospels when Jesus sent His disciples across the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain to pray, and He said, You boys get in the boat and go to the other side. I'll see you there, knowing that He was sending them into a storm. So we see here that some storms come about because of disobedience to God. And God is trying to correct our course. But some storms come about because God is actually using the storm, like He did in the life of the disciples, to grow our faith. But I would argue that Paul's not in a storm like either one of those. Paul, you might say, is in a storm of connection. You say, what do you mean? Now think about this. He's a prisoner. Paul is kind of being drugged into this situation because of his association with the choices of sinful people. That ever happened to you, by the way, friend? It wasn't Paul's decision that they aboard and sail in the fall of the year when the winds and the waves were bad. He was under the authority of an officer. He was a prisoner. He had no rights. But friend, has that ever happened to you? Because of your relationship with somebody else, be it a spouse or a friend or a loved one, you get entangled in the decision that they made, and as a result, you're drugged into the storm with them, and you didn't do anything wrong. It's just a storm of connection because you're connected to them. 
Some storms are just a connecting point from point A to point B. God's trying to get us to a destination. And to get us there, He takes us through the storm. And isn't a blessing that God doesn't tell us everything that we're going to face before we get there because we might quit before we even ever get started. Whatever the reason for the storm in life, we need to realize, notice, friends, that God's providence has already accounted for the winds and the waves. The storm didn't catch God by surprise. He's not like a clueless meteorologist standing in front of a map shaking his head saying, I don't know what to tell you, folk. Think of Paul. Think of Paul in this situation. He's doing exactly what God had called him to do. He's bound for Rome. And look at the difficulty that he encounters along the way. Am I preaching to anybody today? The ease of a task doesn't mean that something is the will of God. Just because something's easy. And conversely, the difficulty of a task doesn't mean that something is not the will of God. You can be doing exactly what God has called you to do and experience the greatest difficulty that you'll ever face. But friend, if God is wise enough to allow us into the storm, I know He's strong enough to get us through to the other side. And if my God will lead you to it, my God will lead you through it. Amen? So we see here that God's providence allows for the storm. Then we see number two, God's presence assures us through the storm. God's presence assures us through the storm. Notice verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. When the ship was called and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along running under the lee of a small island called Caudia. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And after uh, hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. And then fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Hey, you have an image of this. It just gets worse as they go along. And now they're throwing stuff overboard to lighten the load. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor star appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of us being saved at last abandoned. This was it, Paul said. We're gonna, this, is, this is how we meet our end. Then verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. That sound like your mama? I told you so. Should have listened to me the first time. Verse 23, verse 22, For now I urge you to take heart. Listen, there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Here it is. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted 
you all of those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God, and it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. You see what Paul discovered, the presence of God assuring him in the midst of the storm? It's been said that peace is not the absence of problems. It's the presence of Jesus. And in the midst of that terrible tempest, Paul's faith is strengthened because the Bible says an angel of the Lord appeared to him and gave him a promise and said, Look, Paul, I know it looks bad. I know you can't see the stars in the sky. I know the wind's blowing hard and I know the waves are telling you this ship is going to sink. But remember the promise of God. You have a mission. You have a destiny. It's called Rome and you're going to get there. And because of your righteousness, all the men on board are going to get there too. This was not Paul's first time, by the way, of being in that kind of situation. Remember in Acts 18, there in Corinth, Jesus appeared to Paul. Then in Caesarea, Acts 23 and verse 11, Jesus appeared to him in the midst of that peril. I'm reminded as I read this passage of what the Holocaust survivor Corey Ten Boom said years ago, quote, she said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. You translate that metaphor over to a ship and a storm and a captain. And there's an interesting principle that I see here in this passage. And this is something that only the child of God knows. Listen to me. When the storm is darkest... It seems as if we find out in that moment that Christ is nearest. That, that you can't explain that to an unbeliever. You can't lay that out for somebody who don't walk with God, somebody who don't know His Spirit, and somebody who's not acquainted with His Word. But I'm telling you, you can be going through the roughest patch of water that you've ever been through in your life and yet have a peace that passes all understanding because Jesus is there with you on board. And you can be going through that long, dark night and it can be lonely and it can be fearful, and yet you can know the presence of God so real at that time that you say, I can't explain it. I don't have words to put it into uh, vocabulary, but I'm telling you, God is real. Remember that storm on the Sea of Galilee, Matthew 14? That was a test for Peter and the disciples. Remember in that story that as things were about to break open, and that boat was about to break apart and go to the bottom of Galilee, here comes Jesus walking across the Sea of Galilee as if it was solid marble under His feet. And Jesus showed His disciples and us something very important there. And that is that the thing that we fear the most, the storm, the thing that we hate, is actually that vehicle, that pathway through the sea that God uses to bring Himself to us. And often we think we fear the storms of life only to discover it is in those experiences that Jesus is near to us and dear to us. Oh, in the storm, it's our weakness that gives that opportunity to feel God's strength. 
It's in the storm when panic is overrun our mind that we have that chance to feel God's peace. It's in the loneliness of that storm when you think, God has forgotten me out here, that you feel the closeness of His presence when it's about to hit the breaking point. It's in the storm where you find out, hey, I ought not be afraid. I ought not listen to what the voices of the world are telling me because my God knows how to walk on water. And He can deliver me from my storm. I was reading about a a peculiar rite of passage that some Cherokee Indians practiced when a boy came of age. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday, after learning hunting and scouting and fishing skills, they were given one final test before they would become a brave. The boy was placed in a dense forest to spend the entire night alone. But on this night, he was blindfolded, taken several miles away from his home. He had to sit there on a stump all night and not remove the blindfold until the first rays of the sun came over the horizon. And of course you can imagine when you're in the dark, your mind begins to play tricks on you. Amen? Just ask Caitlin, everything turns into a spider that's out to get her in the middle of the night. What is that noise? Do you hear that? Your mind plays tricks on you, don't it? 13-year-old boy out in the wilderness. The wind blows and the grass rustles and they hear all kinds of noises and they think, is that a wolf? Is that a predator? And after what seems like an eternity, dawn breaks. And the boy takes off his blindfold. And what does he see? The first thing that he notices is there was his father with bow and arrow in hand standing over him the whole night. And what he realized is that his father was there even when he didn't see it, even when he didn't feel it. He was there in that dark night. And that's what I want to say to you, friend. Uh, You may not have the pleasure of an angelic appearance to you, but friend, you have something more sure and more blessed. That's God's Spirit and it's God's Word. And when you know it, uh, it'll encamp around your heart and it'll guard you in the midst of that storm. You see, friend, our Heavenly Father is always present even when we don't feel His presence. What are we seeing? Even when I don't feel it, You're working. Even when I don't see it, You're working. Why? Because He's a way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, a light in the darkness. My God, that is who You are. You see, friend, You might ask, why does God stay silent in the long dark of the night? Because that's the only way we could learn faith and courage. So we see in this passage that God's providence allows for storms and God's presence assures us through the storms. And then thirdly, I want you to see God's promises anchor us in the storm. God's promises anchor us. Notice verse 27 again. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. 
And so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms a little further on. They took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Have you ever done that before? You're just holding on with the pinky finger and you're praying, God, get me through this month. God, get me through this week. God, just get me through this day. That's where they were. And the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. And Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Hey, unless these men stay on the ship, you can't be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes from the ship's boat and, and let it go. And as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense without food having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Promise, right? When he had said these things and took bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all that he broke it and began to eat. They were encouraged and ate some food themselves. And we were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. You're going through life and the storm is raging. You find out what's really valuable and what's not. And you have to jettison some things. Lighten the load. Amen? That's what Paul and these men did in this passage. But they had a promise in the midst of the storm. Paul reminded them of that promise three times in that passage we just read as they were thinking about jumping overboard and committing suicide. Paul said, wait! Wait, remember the promise that I told you about? God said we're going to make it. Don't jump ship yet. You haven't seen the delivering hand of my God. And so in verse 22, and verse 25, and verse 34, which we read, you ought to underline those, you see Paul's promise reiterated again and again. This isn't our moment to die. <laughs> Amen? And he rested on the promise of God that one way or another, I don't know how we're going to get from A to Z, but God said we're going to get there, so just hold on to the promise a little bit longer. And I would submit that Paul is the most valuable man on the ship right now. Right? Because he knows God. And he has his wits about him. And he knows the promise of God. And friend, you may be in that situation. You may be the only one who knows God at your workplace. You may be the only one who knows God in your family or in your circle of friends. And everybody else is losing their mind during this pandemic and this election year and the chaos. And folk come to you and say, I don't know what to believe anymore. And you can stand up and say, well, let me show you the promise of my God. That He's still on the throne. That there's hope in Him. Let me tell you about my Jesus a little bit. You see what I'm saying here? Everybody in that ship is in chaos except Paul. The rest of the world's falling apart. Look at our world right now. It's in turmoil. And we need some of God's people to stand up in the workplace, in the community and say, Hey, stop acting foolish. Let me tell you about the promise of God. Right? Am I preaching to anybody today? God's promises are built on four pillars. 
You say, how can I trust God's promises? Because every promise that God made rests on these four pillars. His holiness, which makes it impossible for Him to lie. When God makes a promise, He can't go back on it because He can't lie. Two, His omniscience, which makes it impossible for Him to forget. How many times does your daddy make you a promise as a kid and he forgot about it? This father doesn't forget. Three, His power, which makes it impossible for Him to fail. God can't get Himself in a situation where He said, well, I made that promise and I, I can't keep it because I don't have the resources to do it. And then number four, His faithfulness, which makes it impossible for Him to renege. See, I would say probably one of the most helpful things that we can do to strengthen ourselves is think about the things that turn your mind upside down. Those things that worry you. Those things that send you into a panic attack. Make a list and then search out the Word of God and say, what does God's Word have to say about this? And then begin to memorize it. And store it up in your heart and in your mind. And the next time you find anxiety or panic creeping in, you will have a Scripture promise to go to. You see, you have to start storing up the promises of God in times of sunshine when things are bright and happy, so that when things go sideways in life, you're not scrambling around trying to find an answer. You've already got it in your heart. You're not looking for a life raft or to jump overboard like everybody else. You say, I was made for a storm like this because my God is my anchor. Vance Havner said this, he said, God's promises are checks to be cashed. Not mere mottos to be hung on the wall. Don't we do that? We put a scripture on the wall. We etch it in stone. We embroider it on a nice fluffy pillow. But it never gets inside our heart. And doesn't do us any good when we go through the storm. But listen to this. A promise of God is an anchor of certainty in a storm of uncertainty. I can't hold on to anything, but I can hold on to the unchanging Word of my immutable God. And a promise of God is essentially Him saying, listen, child, everything is going to be okay. You can lean on God's promises because they never break. Amen. Ron Mell tells a story in one of his books about a missionary woman who in the early 1900s was caught on board a passenger ship that was going across the Atlantic. And a terrible storm hit. And on board this luxury liner were several children. And this lady saw that everybody was panicking and the children were getting troubled too. And so what this lady did is she gathered up the children and she began to tell them Bible stories. And this lady was a gifted storyteller and as she began to tell these well-known stories from the Bible, the children calmed down. They forgot that they were in a storm. And after the ship made it through the storm, the captain was making his rounds. And word traveled to him about this gracious woman, about her calmness in the storm, about her rapport with the children. And he found the missionary lady. And he said, thank you. And he said, by the way, how did you keep your cool in the middle of all that chaos. And here's what the woman said. She said, Captain, it's quite simple. She said, I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. 
And I also have two daughters. One of them lives in New York, and one of them lives in heaven. And she said, I knew I was going to see one of them in a few hours, and it didn't matter, didn't make a difference to me which one I would see. How could she say something like that? Because she had the promise of God. Let not your hearts be troubled. For I have gone to prepare a place for you that where I am, praise God, you may be also a promise of God. There's a ship sailing homeward. She stood the test of time. She sailed through Troubled waters, it's the old ship of Zion. She's arrayed for the battle as she sailed throughout the night. And the next time that you see her, she'll be in a sea of white. As she makes her final voyage, and that old ship comes sailing home, there'll be loved ones to greet her as she rides across the foam. Alas, cries the captain, all land is inside with a host no man can number coming in on a sea of white. Amen. God's promises anchor us in the storm. And then lastly, I'm done. Number four, God's purpose is advanced by the storm. God's purpose is advanced by the storm. Notice verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening their ropes and tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. The striking reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard forced and make for the land, and the rest of on planks or on pieces of ship. And so it was that all, all, all were brought safely to land. God kept His promise, didn't He? He told Paul, I'll get you there and I'll keep every one of them alive. God delivered Paul just as He said He would. And Paul was one step closer to Rome. And through the midst of this. You say, why did God do all this to Paul? Here's why. Because it was only in the storm that the pagan sailors saw the courageous witness of God's man in the middle of a hopeless time. And there was a grand purpose behind the storm. And I would wager that the purpose of the storm was more for the pagan sailors than it was for the Apostle Paul. Because somebody had to see the man of God. The only way they could see the man of God as he truly was was to send it through a storm and say, watch how this man lives. Listen to what Kent Hughes said in Acts. He said, quote, Storms may be for us, 
But storms can also be for the good of others. Aboard a storm-tossed ship, people learn a lot about each other very quickly. And haven't we learned a lot about folk in 2020? The imminent threat of death on that floundering freighter revealed the secrets of each man's character. And Paul was head and shoulders above the rest. He was calm and immovable in the face of danger. Perhaps many found Christ in those months on Malta because of Paul's example through the storms. Sometimes, he says, storms come so that God can reveal Christ in us so others will be drawn to Him. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? We complain. We wonder. We question, God, why are you sending me through this? And what you may not realize, child, is that it may not be just for you. It may be for that lost person who's alongside of you, who's watching you go through the storm and saying, I don't understand it. They've got peace. How can they have joy today? Why do they say the things they do? What is it about the church that they love so much? And when everything's breaking up and the world's falling apart, they begin to look at your life and say, I I don't know what he's got. I don't know what she's got. But I've got to get what they have because it's shown me I can't survive a shipwreck unless I have the same God in my life. In 1735, a ship made its way from England to America. On board was a young man, a minister named John Wesley. He had been invited to serve as pastor to British colonists in Savannah, Georgia. A storm slammed the ship as they were going across the Atlantic. They were in serious trouble. Wesley feared for his life. But he noticed on board was a group of German Moravians who were also headed to America to preach to the Indians. And they were not afraid at all. In fact, throughout the storm, they sang hymns. And when the trip ended, he asked the Moravian leader, he said, I don't get it. How do you sing in the middle of a storm? And the Moravian said, Because my life is in God's hands. If I die at sea, that means I go to heaven. And if I get to my destination, that means I get to serve the Lord. Moravian turned to Wesley and he said, Sir, if you don't have peace, do you really know Jesus? That sent John Wesley into a deep pit of conviction. He went on to preach in Georgia, but he fell flat on his face. He had no power because he was so convicted over his own lostness. That experience on the ship had exposed the emptiness in his life. He wrote in his journal, he said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who shall convert me? Three years, he went back to England. He was soul searching. He opened up the book of Romans. Chapter 1 and verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said as he sat there in a church, reading Romans 1, my heart was strangely warmed and God came by and saved him that day. But the turning point, notice what the turning point was. It was a storm-tossed boat. When he saw how other people were living, and he realized, I don't have that. 
And when you're in a storm, God wants you to hang on to Him like a life preserver. But He also wants you to know there's other folk watching how you living during that storm. And your testimony, your witness may be the means of salvation for somebody else going through the same thing. The Bible said they made it to shore. All of them. Why? Because of Paul. Do you know that same Jesus the way Paul did? 